Well, good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting, welcome. We're glad you're with us. Uh, and thanks to the choir for that beautiful song. For those of us that are a little sleep-deprived, hearing a lullaby in the morning was a little, a little tough. So if you need to take a deep breath, college students, you're in the middle of exams, take a deep breath. That's why we stand up to do the uh, doxology. Uh, it's good to be back uh, preaching again this morning. Uh, we Three and a half weeks ago, we had our newest addition to our family, William. And uh, mother and family were doing all right. So thank you. Thanks for all the prayers. And thanks for those of you that so generously shared meals. That's one of the ways um, our church so tangibly cares for folks that have new babies. And as we received that generosity, it, it finally, I'm a little slow, it finally occurred to me that, you know, if we as a family ever found ourselves in the situation in the course of normal life where, where we needed a meal, we, we could probably just ask for it. We wouldn't have to have a baby in order to get it. Um, so I'm going to try to remember that in the future. But uh, <laughs> thanks, for your, thanks for your care for us. Uh, we're in a series this morning, an Advent series, on the book, uh, the very end of Revelation. We're spending four weeks there. We've spent the fall in the beginning of Revelation looking at the uh, seven letters of Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And Camper kicked us off in our Advent series last week. As we now talk about uh, from the book of Revelation, what does it mean for us in this season of Advent, this season leading up to Christmas, which is a season of, of waiting for the coming of the King? The first advent was when Christ came and took on flesh, lived among us, died a death and rose again from the dead for us. That was his first advent. And in this season of advent, we look back to that. But we also look ahead because we believe, as scripture tells us, that there is a second advent, that our King Jesus is coming back, not as an infant, but as reigning king. And so we're examining that this, this uh season, looking at what does it mean for us to wait for that as we live in between these two times. Another way of putting it would be in, we're, we're kind of in the middle of the story. We've, we've hit the climax of the story with the death and resurrection of Christ, and we are still waiting for the, the denouement, for all the threads to be tied together and for Christ to return to us. We'll be reading this morning from Revelation chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 15. And then in chapter 21, verses 6 through 8, you'll find that on page t uh, 1040 if you're using a pew Bible. And you'll find it in the back of your Bible, whichever Bible you're using. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read and dive in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, we thank you for the gift of your word uh, in the book of Revelation, which we've been looking at this semester, and its challenges, and its... Um, vibrant and uh, even often disturbing images that are meant to wake us up, that we might see what is real and that we might have our lives changed by it. Would you open our eyes today? Would you speak to us and minister to us in our need today? And we ask this uh, in the name of Jesus, the hero of Revelation and the hero and Savior of our lives. Amen. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Skip down to verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our Lord stands forever. As we look in this Advent series and season, last week we we talked about um, the the coming, waiting for the coming of of the wedding that Revelation pictures, that Christ will return and will be wed to his people and all the joy that that entails. This morning we're looking at a different aspect of the return of Jesus, a different aspect of what we are waiting for. And we're looking at the, uh, the fact that we even now are waiting for justice. They were waiting for justice. And I'll tell you, as I've studied this passage this week and thought about some of these issues, there's a lot about this passage and certainly about a lot, a lot about this topic that I just don't understand. In fact, studying it this week brought up um, certainly more questions than I knew how to answer. And in some ways, the sermon might do that for you. And that's okay. God works with us over the long haul, and he can take our questions. But if you come away scratching your head and asking questions, so am I. We are in this together. But there are a few things here that, that do stand out very clearly that I think we need to take a close look at this morning as we think about this idea of us waiting for justice. First, we're going to look at the need for justice. In fact, our need for justice. This is important for us. Secondly, we're going to look at the path through justice. And finally, a little bit of what it means for us to actively wait for justice, even now, even this Advent series. So first, we're going to look at our our need for justice. We see here this picture of uh, this final day of justice, this final judgment day. And it's uh, dominated by the picture of a throne, a throne in heaven on which our judge is seated. And in Revelation uh, and throughout the Bible, we get a couple different pictures of this judgment. Uh, God is pictured as the judge. And he is here in Revelation, but also here in Revelation and through the New Testament, we also often see judgment at the end of time being attributed to the Son, to Jesus, that he is our great judge. So here on this throne, it doesn't say here, is this, is this God the Father, is this God the Son? In some sense, it may well be both come to judge us. Uh, this is the day in court. In fact, our only day in court. Because there is no court of appeals after this. This is, this is the Supreme Court. Uh, that is the only court that's in session, and there will be no mistrials, and there will be no procedural errors, there will be no injustice, but God will be seated on his throne. And it says here that uh, the earth will give up its dead, that Hades will give up its dead, that the, the seas will give up their dead, that every person who has ever lived will stand on this day of justice before God's judgment throne. And just hearing that, maybe you can hear and feel uh, some of the, the tension of talking about that. I certainly feel it as we read and look at this. Because in many ways, certainly for us in our culture, God's, God, the picture of God as a judge and this day of justice is scandalous to us, isn't it? 
and maybe for some of us in this room too, questions that we wrestle with. What does it mean if God is a God of love that he is also a God who, who brings this kind of judgment, who really does throw people into the lake of fire that's pictured here? That uh, revelation is highly metaphorical, but even those metaphors stand for something. There is real punishment and separation from God here. How does that fit together? It's the questions that our society uh, ask. And, and let me just point out here that um, those are good questions. But we also need, as we come with our questions to the Bible, we need to remember that so many of our questions even are culturally conditioned. And let me give you an example. When, uh, when Jesus first came, his birth and his life and this picture of him as reigning king, these were scandalous to the first audience as well. It was scandalous to first century Jews to whom Jesus came, but scandalous for exactly the opposite reason that it is for us. Okay, because we look at this idea of God as judge and we think, how can that fit with a God who is love? First century Jews, however, were looking at their long history of oppression and saying, when is God gonna send his judge? When is he gonna send his Messiah? When is he gonna send his conquering king to finally come and crush the Romans, to finally come and liberate us and set us free and wipe out our enemies? And so for them, the idea of Jesus born in a manger, born as a baby, taking on the humility of that, taking on the poverty of that, taking on a life of humble service, taking on a life where his power would be exhibited through a cross first rather than with a sword was scandalous. They didn't want a savior like that. But for us, we love Jesus in the, in the manger, right? We love baby Jesus. And we love baby Jesus at this time of year uh, because it is an image that we as a culture can handle. There he is, all cute and peaceful and tame, right? But when we start talking about Jesus grown up, when we start talking about Jesus the judge, we are scandalized. And I think it hits on this deeper question of if, if that is true of God, if he is going to bring this kind of justice with this kind of grim end to his enemies, how can his people even be trusted? I mean, because if we follow a God like that, won't that make us wrathful and dangerous people ourselves. Isn't this idea of God's wrath, this kind of primitive understanding of God that we can finally do away with, won't belief in a God of justice who sends people to hell actually create a world of violence? Uh, I, I was remembering a book I read as a kid. Uh, some of you will have read. It's called The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. And uh, I remember as a child reading this, and as I look back, what I remember about the book was it, it's being this great book of adventure, of this guy who is falsely accused and thrown into prison, and he, he finally escapes. And then he, he spends over the next decade uh, bringing revenge on his enemies, which appealed to me at some point in my childhood. The more I look back on it, I see how dark a picture that really is. Here's this man, uh, the character in the book, uh, his name is Edmund Dantes, and he has been falsely accused, locked away in prison for 14 years where he's forgotten until he manages to escape, and then he spends the next 10 years of his life dedicated to this one sole purpose, the four people who put him in jail. He enters their lives to bring humiliating, destroying revenge so that he can finally feel set free. 
There's one place in the story where he's discussing with another character uh, the practice in their culture of dueling. And he says, you know, dueling is, is fine for certain offenses. Like, let's say you're out on the street and somebody insults you. Well, then a duel is a fine way to handle that. The death is uh, quick, but, uh, you know, that's fine for a light offense, but it is too quick a death for a weighty offense. When something has really been done wrong, then people need to be treated long and deliberately and painfully. Uh, he came to see himself in this book as an embodiment of divine justice. And as the book goes on, you see how dark and misplaced that is. But often, maybe that's our picture of wouldn't a God of justice lead us to that? Um, there's a, a Yale theologian named Miroslav Volf, who's Croatian, and he's written a lot. But one of his books is called Exclusion and Embrace. And it takes up this question of uh, believing in a God who really brings justice. You know, does that lead to more violence or to less? And particularly looks at people that have been oppressed severely and says, what are the theological resources we have to actually help people respond nonviolently, to not lash back out? And he takes this objection that a God of justice would lead us to more violence, and he turns it on its head. And he says actually this, in a world of violence, it would not it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception, if he did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. And he goes on to say, for instance, in his own homeland, where people have, uh, where you could go talk to any group of people and they would have known people in their family who were killed, who were raped, who were... Um, who were persecuted by the authorities, he said, what is going to give them the resources not to strike back? The only thing that will give that to them is if they know that there is a God who is a God of justice, a God who one day will make things right, and therefore they don't have to. He said, the only way we're going to be able to lay down the sword is if we know that God cares that much about injustice, that one day he will, in fact, bring the justice that we long for. You see, Scripture points us to this, that God's justice is good, and it is something we in our world desperately need, that there is a day of reckoning when all will be put right. And there is one God who knows and has the power to bring true justice, exactly the right justice with exactly the right facts. And you, you know what it's like to, to taste some of that. If you, if you like... Uh, <clears throat> Movies, TV shows, books maybe about that are sort of centered around the courtroom drama, right? The whole movie builds up to that last moment in the courtroom scene where finally, you know, the innocent person is uh, vindicated and finally the, uh, the guilty person is declared guilty and they receive their punishment. And there's that sense of, yes, because this is right and justice must be served. We're going to see in these next couple weeks in waiting that Revelation paints this incredibly beautiful picture of a world restored, of heaven brought down to earth, of a world where all sin and evil has been eradicated, where beauty and life and humanity can finally flourish the way that it's meant to. But here's the thing, if we're ever going to get to those next chapters, and if that is ever going to be a reality in our world, then the real evil in our world must be dealt with. It must be dealt with decisively. It must be wiped out if there is ever going to be a world of healing like that. Here's the way one uh, commentator puts it. 
The standard of God's justice as well as the holiness and peace of the new Jerusalem requires the exclusion of evil. No sin or second fall into evil will disturb the permanent security of the new world. You see, God's justice is coming to scrub the world clean, even of our greatest enemies. You see who is under judgment in verse 14? What does he say? That even death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that there will come a day when even death itself is swallowed up in victory. That our greatest enemies, even death itself, are one day going to be no more. It is for our good. But, do you feel the dilemma? You see, uh, the dilemma is here. It's, it's not, as Scripture teaches, it's not just the cruel dictator. It's not just the perpetrators of world genocide. It's not just the violent and dangerous lawbreakers who are called to account. We all must appear before God in the day of justice. And the truth is, we cannot stand in that day. Not on the basis of our own track record. Not on the basis of our own goodness. You see, we too deserve the justice of God. You see what happens on that day, we're pictured here that books are open. Books upon books upon books. As one commentator suggests, it may well be the picture here is that there is a book for every person. And those books are going to be opened. And they are going to give a record of everything that we've ever done and said and thought. Everything that we've left undone and unsaid and unthought. What will it be like to be exposed like that? Uh, a few years ago, it was my father-in-law's uh, 60th, 60th birthday, and it, we, there was a party for him. Uh, and my father-in-law, often and usually a very intelligent man, he, he uh, made the mistake of inviting me to be the MC of the party. And uh, as you might imagine, there, it, was, it was a time of celebration and roast. Um, I'll leave it to your imagination which part I enjoyed more. Uh, but in, in this, as people told stories about my father-in-law, and he's one of those people who accumulates stories like Velcro. He's just one of those men. And uh, Elizabeth and I were able to, to share with uh, everybody there uh, a little tape that we had made. You see, my father-in-law was in the habit, and he's no longer in this habit, he was in the habit of, of leaving uh, uh, answering machine messages in our answering machine when we weren't there. But the thing about my father-in-law's answering machine messages, he would often sing <laughs> into the answering machine. He'd sing happy birthday. He graduated from the University of North Carolina during basketball season. He'd, he'd sing the Tar Heel fight song. Uh, he would tell jokes. He'd tell about embarrassing things that happened that day. I think that my father-in-law, when he starts talking on the phone, and it's just an answering machine and no one's talking back, it's just sort of stream of consciousness. It just comes out. Now, that, that normally wouldn't be that bad if, like me, you know, when somebody leaves a message for you, you take the information and then you hit delete. Well, for a number of years, Elizabeth and I had been accumulating these messages. <laughs> we had been saving them. And at this birthday, we hit play on the tape recorder. And about 10 minutes of accumulated messages came out, songs and jokes and embarrassing stories. And my father-in-law is getting pale and everyone else is laughing. And there his life is exposed for everyone. And it was funny and fun. Um, but for my father-in-law, that was just one window into his life, his answering machine life. But uh, what about us? The picture we are given here of these books open, it's not just an answering machine tape. It is a record of everything. Everything about us, every word recorded, every scene captured, every thought and motive of the heart. No ambiguity here. There's no lack of evidence, no way to respond 
to what is in that book except to say, yes, that's true. I am who that book says that I am. It reveals our deeds, and our deeds reveal us. Listen to a few thoughts from some of the commentators here. Deeds reveal values. Deeds reveal character. Deeds reveal our true allegiance, and deeds reveal what we really believe. Deeds are the fruit of faith. On the final accounting, it will be according to our deeds because our deeds are the most reliable indicators of where our faith lies. And finally, this, the issue is not salvation by works, but works as the irrefutable evidence of a person's actual relationship with God. Salvation is by faith, but faith is inevitably revealed by the works that it produces. When those books are read in their completeness, it will be found that we fall short. And this day of justice tells us there is real punishment for sin. Real punishment meted out by God's justice. Pictures here of fire, of separation from God, of disintegration. Let me see the dilemma. On the one hand, God's justice is what we desperately need to make this world right. And on the other hand, none of us can actually stand before that justice. So where is our hope? Second thing we see in our passage the path through justice. These books are opened and read, but did you notice in verse 12 there's, an, there's another book? There's another book. It says the book of life is also taken out, and this is a book, not a record of deeds, but a record of names of God's people, of those who have been bought with the blood of his son, Jesus. It is a book that says not here are the people who have earned their righteousness, but here are the people who have been rescued by the righteousness of another. Revelation chapter 5 is one of the places in Revelation where it speaks of Jesus as a lamb who has been slain. On the one hand, in Revelation, he is pictured as a conquering lion, but also here is a lamb who was slain, that his victory comes through his death and resurrection for us. And we get here a picture again in this book of life that the only way to stand in this judgment, the only path through this judgment, is for someone to take that judgment for us, on his own shoulders to receive what we so desperately need and deserve at the bar of God's justice. And the book of life says this is a book of those who have found their life not in themselves but in Jesus. Because the cross itself answers this dilemma. God shows himself there in the words of Paul as just and justifier of those who have faith in Christ. That on the cross, God's justice is displayed as he punishes sins. But his mercy is displayed as he pours out his wrath on Jesus rather than on us. That we can only stand in this day of judgment as people who are recipients of grace. Uh, Fifty years later, after the writing of the Count of Monte Cristo, another French writer, Victor Hugo, wrote uh, his masterpiece, Les Miserables. And whereas Edmond Dantes in uh, the Count of Monte Cristo uh, experienced injustice and became incredibly bitter and hard through the experience, Jean Valjean, in some ways the main character of uh, Les Mis, has an opposite experience, uh, also a life-changing experience. He is thrown in jail, in one sense justly, for stealing a scrap of bread when he is starving. And years later, he is released with no prospects before him. He wanders to the house of uh, a local bishop in the town where he finds himself, who brings him into his house, who feeds him, who clothes him, who gives him a place to sleep. 
And in the middle of the night, while the bishop is sleeping, Jean Valjean takes a sack and fills it with all the silver in the house. And he, um, and he leaves the house, and he's making his getaway. And further in town, he's captured by the police, who realize, based on the silver, where it came from. And they go banging on the door of the bishop and wake him up and say, we have caught this thief who has stolen all of your silver. And the bishop looks at Jean Valjean, and he says, I'm so glad you came back. You forgot the candlesticks. What were you thinking? These are my gift to this man. And in that moment, Jean Valjean experiences something that he had never tasted before. He experiences grace. He experiences someone in the midst of his sin speaking instead of harsh justice, words of forgiveness and life and peace. And he leaves that moment in his encounter with that man utterly changed. His heart is changed. His direction of life is changed. And he takes the wealth that this bishop gives him and he uses it finally now for the good of others, a life that has been turned around. Jean Valjean, hardened by years of prison and harsh treatment, experiences grace, this unearned acceptance and forgiveness, and his heart melts. How are we, let me ask it this way, how are we going to get that? If, if our deeds cannot stand, if what we so desperately need is Christ, and at the end of the day, the books are open, and it is about whether or not your name is written there. How does your name get there? If you read verses like this in the Bible, you'll notice that the Bible never says something like this. At the end of the day, cross your fingers and just hope beyond hope that it, when that book is open, that your name is going to be there. Right? Try to live a good life and see if you can make it. The Bible never says that. Reminds me of a conversation that I had a number of years ago with a family member who is not a follower of Jesus. And we've had conversations about this periodically over the years. And at one point in this conversation, he said to me, uh, wouldn't you say to me that, in fact, I, I can't even believe in Jesus unless God were to somehow open my heart that I might see that and receive it? Um, and he, he had enough good theology to say that. Uh, and I just kind of nodded and said, yeah, and the conversation was over. Um, I've thought about that conversation a lot over the years, and the Bible says there's actually more to be said than that. In one sense, my family member was, was giving a biblical truth, but he was forgetting uh, another part of the biblical truth, which is that though the Bible rightly and upholds the fact that it is God who comes after us, the Bible never says, wait around until he does. Hope beyond hope that he'll someday open your eyes. The Bible uses words like this, repent and believe. That's what Jesus said, the one who came to bring this forgiveness. That's what he said when he stepped on the scene and began to preach to the crowds. He didn't say cross your fingers. He said repent and believe. Turn away from the things that are not God. Turn to him. Ultimately, he says, turn towards me that you might find life through my death, my resurrection for you. Turn. Listen. And that's the message we hear this Advent season as well. Repent and believe the good news. You see, God's good news, God's justice is good news for us, but it does create a dilemma. There is a way through. It is through Jesus. But there's something else here in this passage. What does it mean, given all that, what does it mean for us, even right now, these next few couple weeks of Advent, what does it mean for us to wait for this? To, to somehow rightly long for justice and to, to live that out in our world now. 
I mean, you notice how easy it is to misapply this as so many things about the promises of Scripture. You could misapply it this way. Look, one day God is going to come and he's going to judge everything perfectly and we are not going to get it all right between now and then. So in that case, let's just hunker down. Let's pay attention to ourselves. Let's make sure we take care of our own stuff and God will sort it out in the end, right? We'll, we'll just wait for God's justice. But I think that would betray a lack of understanding of what it means to align yourself, to have yourself aligned to God and his purposes. If that is where we are going, if that is the beautiful picture of a world made right, then if we are going to be followers of Jesus, we have to love what he loves now. We have to look towards what he is bringing even now, and we have to do all that is in our power to make that reality around us now. Will it be incomplete? Yes. Will we fail? Yes. Is it going to need to be completed by Jesus when he returns? Yes. Does it matter now? Yes, it does. That we be people who love justice just as our Father loves justice and show it in the world around us. So there are many ways we might think about applying this. Let me just give us two to chew on this week. One is this. If we are going to wait faithfully for God's justice, that means right now that we are now finally free to do what Jesus calls us to do, to love our enemies, to love our enemies, to step down from the bench because you and I are not the judge and the true judge is there and he will judge and so the burden is off our shoulders. Jean Valjean, later in the book of Les Mis, he um, has an enemy who pursues him for years, even in his goodness. This enemy is Inspector Javert, who knows about Jean Valjean's background in prison and cannot believe that someone could actually change. And so he is out to destroy his life. And there's a point in the book when Jean Valjean has Javert in his hands. And he is expected to kill him. And Javert deserves it. But instead of killing him, Jean Valjean lets him go. Even though he knows Javert could turn around later and still destroy him. He lets him go. Why? Because Jean Valjean has tasted grace. And he is now sharing it with an enemy. And if you know the book, you know that Javert could not handle this extravagant display of grace. And he ultimately throws himself into the river and kills himself because he cannot make sense of how anyone could show grace like that. But you see, the gospel frees us to do exactly that, to actually love our enemies. Now, maybe you say, I, I'm not a character in a French novel, and I don't have an arch enemy. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Um, who are you bitter towards? Who has wronged you? What wrongs have been done to you that come to mind again and again, the ones that just replay over and over in your head? What are the things that you dwell on and that you let fester in your life? And then what will it mean for you this Advent season to love and step towards those who have hurt and wronged you, to love them? That will be one way in which we will wait for justice and live in it even now. But the second way, I think for us to think about, and just briefly this morning, you notice when, when Scripture talks about justice, there, there's, um, there's a way in which it speaks to us about making justice happen actively. You may be familiar with Micah 6, 8. It says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You hear that it says to do justice. The scriptural picture of justice is something that we do, and it's nuanced. Let me give you a, 
Let me read to you a, a section from a, a new book by a guy named Kelly Capick. It's called God So Loved That He Gave. Here's what he says. When the average American hears the word justice, we typically think of rights being upheld or fair punishment or procedures followed. For example, we talk about criminals receiving punishment or justice, or we call a court system or a business transaction just because the process is used to make the decision or transaction were fair and unbiased. But when the average Old Testament Israelite heard the word justice, it would have meant much more. Fundamental to this more expansive biblical portrait of justice is the recognition that God is not blind to the inequalities of the world. Instead, God sees and acts vigorously to defend and restore those who are weak, poor, and marginalized. He goes on to talk about positive and negative justice. Negative justice is the righting of wrongs. Positive justice is creating a situation such that those wrongs never occur. Tim Keller takes up the same topic in his new book, Generous Justice. Um, and, and he talks about it in terms of this rectifying justice and primary justice. Again, rectifying justice, what God does at the great throne here. But God, throughout Scripture, concerned about primary justice, building peace, building a, wor a world where things work right, where people can flourish, where people experience true justice. And he goes on to say, you know, some people would rather separate those two concepts, like there's justice, retributive justice, and there's something else that we ought to call maybe charity, acting well towards other. But he says, he says the problem with the word charity is that in English, charity at the end of the day is something that is optional. It's something that you might choose to move towards someone else. But in the biblical picture of justice, those always go together. Things made right, but at the same time, a call and a command to move towards others in generous, just care. Those are wed together in Scripture. That's what Jesus had in mind in Matthew 25, which Philip read earlier. The scene of Judgment Day, where at the end of the day, Jesus turns to one group of people and he says, You fed me when I was hungry. You came to me when I was in prison. You clothed me when I was naked. And they said, When did we do that? He said, Whenever you did that for one of the least of these, you did it for me. To those who come under judgment, he says, you didn't feed me, you didn't clothe me. I said, Jesus, where were you when you didn't feed the poor, when you didn't care about the stranger, when you did not care for the orphan, when you did not give justice, then you did not care for me. So our second way maybe to explore what does it mean to live and wait for justice now, on the one hand, to, to love our enemies, and the other here is to show this kind of justice to act in this kind of way to the world around us. And anytime we talk about this, about doing something, there's always this danger that we can walk away in this Advent season with the thought of, I just need to go do something good now so that I can feel good about myself, so that I can lessen uh, the low-level guilt that I still feel over this topic. Um, I'm not really trusting Jesus in the gospel. I'm trusting my performance, and so I feel guilty when I haven't been generous and just enough to other people. So I'm going to do something so that I'll feel a little bit better. There's always a danger. But there's also the possibility that as we step into Acts of justice towards others with a heart that is being changed that it might really bring a life that is changed for us that it won't just be a tip to our guilt that it'll really bring something real and lasting in other words I don't want to just say to you just go do something so you can feel better but at the same time I think we do need to say go do something 
as we step into this together. Let me just give you a couple thoughts. My family is wrestling with this, and we're not honestly very good or certainly very admirable in this, but let me give you just a little window just to give you a picture of how we're trying to wrestle this out. We've been talking this Advent season, each week of Advent, of how do we do something to try to love those around us or outside of our family. So uh, last week we sent um, some cookies to a college student that our kids love in another state. Just a small thing, but a picture of love. This week, we're trying to figure out how do we care about the, the larger world around us? How do we help our kids learn to do that? How do Elizabeth and I do that? And so we took a small step. Here's what we hit on. We're, we've started sponsoring two compassion kids in another part of the world so that our kids can grow up knowing there are people out there around the world that God cares about and loves and that he calls us to care about and love. It doesn't solve all the world's problems by any stretch. Uh, but for Angelina in Ecuador and for Simon in the Dominican Republic, life, life will be different. My kids will get a taste of that, and we will get a taste of that. Um, maybe it means looking in through your bulletin. You see there on page 5 of your bulletin, you'll see that um, you know, one way one of the families in our church is trying to do this, the Clearies have uh, taken on a, a family they got in, in touch with through the James City County uh, Social Services where they are adopting some kids who are in foster care to help care for them over Christmas in the family where they are staying and there are lots of opportunities like that around here. Some of you have been in our Sunday School series on the Advent Conspiracy and heard a lesson today on giving more and giving ourselves Maybe it's uh, thinking very seriously in the next couple of weeks about how we might give sacrificially to the mercy offering we heard about as one way to serve and to love. Maybe the question for you it needs to be this week, as you think about it yourself or with your family or in your small group this week, what has God given you in your time, your money, your skills, your opportunities to do justice in this world around you, even this Advent season? And there will be as many different possible answers to that as there are people in this room. But I think we can say with our hands firmly on the gospel, remembering that it is not our effort but only Christ's sacrifice for us that wins us favor in God's eyes. We can know that. We can hold on to that. And with that, we can then say, okay, okay. What's it going to mean to live out this kingdom life? What's it going to mean to live out a life as a child of God as he has made me to be? How can I take steps to love a life of justice, to love the world around me, to get outside of myself, to be challenged even by this text. The kind of questions we often run from, I do, but Bible, the Bible faithfully brings them back to us again and again and again because God wants more for us than what often becomes such a narrow life consumed uh, with all our little interests with no vision of what God is doing in this world, what he created us for, what he is recreating this world to be. This Advent, we are invited into that, and it is better than our smaller and lifeless dreams. May God show us that again. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would change us. You give us hearts that are generous, that we would t drink deeply of your grace, that we might show love to our enemies, that we might show love to the world, that we might live in line with your work and purposes in this world, and that we might see how good and big and glorious that is. We ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus, the generous one. Amen.